All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad, glad that you guys are here. Um, I want to be honest with you. I am struggling with this message tonight. Um, not because I'm struggling with what to say. I'm struggling with having too much to say. So I told you when we first started the church that what I wanted to do was kind of highlight some of the traditional holidays as we go through and explain them. Because so many times as Christians, we kind of go through these times um, sort of unaware. We kind of hear, we're vaguely aware that it's Lent or vaguely aware that Passover's coming up or those sorts of things. But we really don't have an understanding or an appreciation of really what they mean. And so I decided a long time ago that I really want to kind of highlight those and teach about those as we go along. But here's the problem with doing something like that, especially this time of year. This Holy Week starts tomorrow, okay? And there are many significant things leading up to Easter or Resurrection Weekend. There is so much going on that it's virtually impossible to do justice and talk about what they are. So rather than to try and really fully get into the significance and what everything is, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of some of, the, some of the events and some of the holy holidays that are coming up and some of the things that are part uh, of this holy week. So as we go in, again, one week till Easter, so next weekend is Easter weekend. That's amazing. When we started this seven weeks ago and we started talking about Stations of the Cross, I thought, man, this is going to take forever to get there, and everybody's going to be bored, and nobody's going to come, and they're all going to like, oh, we'll catch you in the spring, but that hasn't happened. You guys have been wonderful, and I've been getting great feedback on teaching on the historical aspects, and I'm glad that that's resonating with a lot of you, because that's really what speaks to my heart. It's what makes it real. So what makes it real to me is knowing the context and the background of the things that are in Scripture. So um, anyway, so I just appreciate that you guys are here and that you appreciate that as well. So coming up, uh, we've already talked about Lent, we've already talked about Ash Wednesday, and we've already talked about Purim, just at least on a surface basis, and we've gone through those. So here's what's coming up. Okay, we've got Palm Sunday, which is actually tomorrow. We've got Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Passover, and Easter. All coming up. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you just the most brief, <laughs> so that we can get out of here tonight, the most brief overview of kind of what those things are. So first of all, Palm Sunday. Okay, Palm Sunday is, it's, it's tomorrow. Okay, Palm Sunday is the first day of the official Holy Week. Now, you may have heard it called the triumphal entry. Some people have heard it explained that way. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And scripture records that Jesus actually rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Right? Have you heard that story before? Maybe you have. If you haven't, uh, it's a great story. It's in all the Gospels, and you can actually look through there and, and read up a little bit more about it. But the cool thing about it, it's actually prophesied in way back 750 years before that. There's a prophet named Zechariah who actually prophesies about this, and he writes about this. He write, and here's what he writes. This is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey. Righteous and victorious and lowly. Who else could he be describing? Riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is a prophesied act. And then the actual scripture, and again, it's, it's in all the Gospels, but the one that I'm just going to read really quick, Mark, it's out of Mark, Mark 11, 8 to 10, and many spread their coats on the road. These are people who are joyous, they're excited that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, okay? He's actually coming in, people are flocking into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, and they've heard 
that this guy, this prophet Jesus is coming, and they are so excited. And so the they they're talking about is a mixture of disciples and just people who have heard, and they've got this curiosity about who this Jesus is, and they're coming to see him. And one way that they pay respect is that they spread branches out on the rocky pathway to ease the pathway of Jesus and the donkey. And scripture says this, And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So picture Jesus is riding and he's riding on this donkey, fulfilling scripture. These people, many of these people would have known about that scripture and they're seeing Jesus coming in, the prophesied Messiah, and he's arriving. Can you imagine the excitement that you would have? You've heard about this ever since you were a little kid. You've heard about these scriptures, about this coming Messiah, and you see this happening right in front of your eyes. How exciting and what a joyous occasion that would be. And so this is why they're jumping around, screaming and yelling and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's really, really something to think about, to put yourself in that place. So that's what Palm Sunday is. That's the significance. Okay. So Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he goes, and Scripture records, and I won't talk about everything that he did. He, he did a few things, and then he left, and he spent a night, and then he came back. So a couple different times where he comes and goes. But one of the key things that he does that ties into why we're talking about this is he kicks the money tree. He goes to the temple. Okay, He's going to the temple, the high holy place there. He goes there, and he sees all these booths set up. And all these booths are selling things, vendors, right? And they call, the word calls them money changers, in part because what, one of the things that they're doing is they're literally exchanging currency, Jewish currency for Roman currency, and, and at not at a favorable exchange rate. They're making a lot of money off of the pilgrims who come in from the countryside and come in from all over. We talked about Simon the Cyrene coming all the way from Libya, right? People were coming from all over the place into town for Passover. And they couldn't travel with all the things that they needed to celebrate Passover. Some of the things that they needed, they, Passover, in order to do it properly, you would do an animal sacrifice. You would sacrifice goats or sheep, or if you didn't have very much money, you were allowed to sacrifice a dove, okay? But they had to be perfect. They had to be perfect and spotless and without flaw according to the judgment of the high priest, okay? So the high priest, you could bring an offering, and the high priest could go, mm-mm, doesn't doesn't fit our, our requirements, right? The biblical, according to him, requirements. And so people would travel all this way, and instead of going, well, I'm going to bring one of my goats with me, you know, 500 miles across the desert or whatever it is, I'm just going to bring some money, and when I get there, I'll buy one. And so what they did here is these vendors that were set up in the temple courts were actually handpicked. A lot of sources say that they're actually family members, of the high priest. But in any case, family members, friends, acquaintances of the high priest who were handpicked to get the opportunity to go in and set up their little booths and sell doves or lambs or goats or change money or whatever their thing was in there. So they were handpicked and they were making a killing. They're making a killing. These people would come in. First of all, they'd have to change the money they had into the currency that they could use. And then they would go buy a dove or a lamb in order to be able to sacrifice it. Jesus sees this, and immediately it just flares up inside him. 
This is a holy place. This is a holy thing. These are people who believe in God, and they're coming from all over the world to celebrate this time of Passover. And here you are, the high priest, and you're making a killing on these people. You're taking advantage of these people, and you're making money. This is what rises up in Jesus. So he comes in, Scripture says, he kick, comes in, and he kicks over the tables, and, he, and once past, Scripture even says that he's whipping them. Okay, this, this meek and mild Jesus that we all picture, picture a different guy. Picture a guy that is so angry, righteous anger. He's kicking over tables, and he's whipping these vendors and kicking them out. Okay, this is no, this is no mild-mannered, skinny little guy. This is a man that's full of righteous anger at this point. But here's what happens. The high priest sees this happening. And he's, he's powerless to stop it. Jesus makes it happen. But his, his little thing that he's got going on is now in danger, right? Because I'm sure the high priest got a kickback. There's no fact about that. But if he's the one that handpicked the people who could sell and they were making a killing, there's a good chance some of it got filtered back to the high priest in the way of donations, right? So he's seeing his, his way of life and his... His little thing that he's got going on, again, he sees that that's in danger. This Jesus has thrown a wrench into what he's doing, and he starts formulating this plot. Now, Jesus has been dangerous to him and to his purposes and his way of life, again, for quite a while. This may have been the final straw where he says, that's, now that it's affecting my pocketbook, this guy's got to go. So that's where we are. So that's, that's all Palm Sunday. Now, or Palm Sunday and the day following Palm Sunday. Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday is this coming Thursday. It's March 29th. It's the day that Jesus sat down with his disciples and had the Last Supper. That's what it is. The word Maundy actually translates as, um, let me make sure that I get this right, uh, is, is Latin for command. And if you remember what happened, this is where Jesus actually tells his disciples, he gives them the word, and he says, I want you to, to celebrate me. Remember me. When we do communion, this is what we're celebrating. We're remembering Jesus' commandment to celebrate him and to think about him and what he has done. So that's it. It's Monday's Latin for the word commandment, and this is because Jesus commanded them to drink the wine and eat the bread, which is his body and his blood. So that's the significance of Maundy Thursday. A lot of churches have special services where they just serve communion. Some of them even go a step further and they wash each other's feet, which is what Jesus did with the disciples in that upper room. So that's Maundy Thursday. Good Friday now. You heard Gabe talk about Good Friday. We're going to do a Good Friday um, experience here. Again, it's not a service. It's going to be really cool, though. I think you'll like it with interactive tables and sight and smell and kind of tactile things going on. We will, by the way, I don't think we've mentioned it, we will have childcare available. So if you've got little ones who are not appropriate to come in, they all can, but you'll be the judge. If it'd be less distracting to have them in childcare, you can do that. Otherwise, your kids are welcome to join you in here. So we'll have that child care at all three services. So anyway, so it's um, Good Friday is what we're going to do. The reason it's called Good Friday, actually, it's the day that Jesus was crucified. It's actually the day that he was crucified and put to death. A lot of times people are like, why is it called Good Friday? Well, that actually just goes back to an old English tradition where good meant holy. Anything that was good was considered holy, and so those two words were almost synonymous. So really you could call it Holy Friday. 
instead of Good Friday, and that's where it comes from. But we use the term good, which seems like an oxymoron when you know about what actually happened on that day. And then the last part of it, Passover. So Passover actually starts Friday the 30th and goes for, I think it's eight days, goes uh, until the evening of, of April 7th, Saturday. This is why the timing of Passover was why there was such a rush to crucify Jesus, to get this done and get him out of the way, is because you weren't allowed to do certain things on Passover. You weren't supposed to, to do any work or anything. And so they were trying to get this all done before Passover. Passover, if you don't know, you can read, actually, if you read Exodus chapter 12, it will talk all about what the Passover is. Passover is actually celebrating the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, okay, their freedom. Now, if you want to read a specific scripture that talks about it, I'll show you, I'll tell you which one. It's Exodus 12, 12 and 13. In fact, I'll read it really quick for you. Um, This is the Lord speaking. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the Lord has told the Israelites to slaughter the lamb and put the blood on their doorposts as a sign that, that the Israelites, that Israelites lived there so that they wouldn't get caught up in this slaughter against Egypt. So that's the significance of Passover. Some people celebrate it, some people don't. It's not anything that typically that a Christian will celebrate, but we should all know about it because they are God's chosen people and we are grafted into that. So it is a significant thing for us. So... Now that I've taken uh, most of my time capping those, I'm going to actually go into the message. We'll talk about the station. This is the final station. Now, if you missed any of the other ones, one through seven, you can go back, you can podcast, or you can catch them on our website. I urge you to catch up. I'm not going to go in detail about what those things were, um, but again, I urge you to go back and catch up. This week, though, station number eight. Station number eight, the scripture we're going to use is in Luke this time. Luke 23, 44 to 46. If we could throw that up there on the screen. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now I want to show you a picture of this. A lot of times you see images of of Jesus' death on the cross. Go ahead and throw that picture up there. Now this is actually very accurate. Because most of them show this all happening in pure white daylight. But scripture actually tells us that the sun was obscured. And it became dark at that moment of death. The light of the world was literally being taken away. And so even though this is kind of hard to see, this is what it would have looked like in the dark as Jesus gave his life for us. So I'm going to talk more about this scripture. I'm going to break it down in just a minute. Um, But one thing I want to tell you about this is when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is only recorded in Luke, by the way. The other Gospels actually talk about different things that Jesus said. 
Um, doesn't make one right or wrong, and I'll explain that here in just a second. But what's important to understand is that this is a moment of supreme trust in the Father's Lord, in the Father's heart, in his love for his son and for us. Jesus is able to sit there and at that moment give up his life, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. And if you remember in that scripture, I, I told you a while ago, and I'll, I'll remind you every, every now and then, when you see scripture that's all in capitals like that, that means it's referencing Old Testament, either old, where it says, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's either referencing Old Testament prophecy or Old Testament scripture. And this uh, is very much that case. And I'll explain that to you here in just a second also. But one thing that I want to do, and it's just something I've been praying about all day long, is there a lot of us here who had, had or have difficulties trusting in the goodness of God? We can trust in the goodness of God when things are going pretty well. But when we're faced with life and death, maybe it's our death, maybe it's the death of a loved one, in that supreme moment of sacrifice, are we truly able to trust in the Lord? Jesus models this right here. He confidently says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knows exactly what is about to happen. And he knows it's the fulfillment of his destiny and everything that he was put on this earth to do. So I know that there are people here who have that very same, um, that very same thought. You have had doubts. And it's okay and it's normal and it's human to have doubts. But then... The Spirit rises up in us, and we are able to then confidently say, I will overcome because God is good and God is with me. And the reason I bring this up now is because at the end of the, of the message, I want to take just a moment for a testimony or two. So if there's someone out there who right now is saying, that was me. I had fears and I had doubts, and the Lord helped me to overcome those. And it's through his power and through my faith in who he is that I was able to overcome that doubt and that fear. So just pray about that, and if the Holy Spirit pinpoints something on you, I'll make some time at the end of the service to do that. So anyway, so to get back to the message right here, I want to talk about the Gospel of Luke just a little bit. Okay, We've talked about the other Gospel writers. Luke is a little bit different in that Luke, believe it or not, was the only Gentile writer of any biblical verses. He was the only Gentile writer, meaning the only one who wasn't a Jew, which makes him very interesting. He was actually from Syria. He was a doctor. That was his profession. He was a doctor from Syria, a place called Antioch. If you read scripture, that's where it says he's from. He was a really close friend of the Apostle Paul. I don't know how they met exactly, but they were, they were close friends, and they traveled together quite a bit. And so they influenced each other. And Luke actually wrote, he wrote Acts, and then obviously the Gospel of Luke. Um, Gospel of Luke was written somewhere around 61 AD. And if you infer things from the scripture, you look at the timing of when different things happened. It was written while Luke was in Rome and while Paul was in prison in Rome. Okay, so Paul had been thrown in prison. And Luke was there as an associate of his, traveling companion. He was hanging out in Rome trying to figure out how can I help my friend who's in prison, okay? So that's where we are. Luke um, actually never met Jesus. Luke never met Jesus. 
And that's interesting to note because when you look at the gospel, it's written very, very detailed. And that detail is actually explained. Luke actually explains his own detail. First of all, being a doctor, he's kind of a detail-oriented guy, right? But he actually says this. He opens up the gospel of Luke like this. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Now, I won't read the whole thing, but it starts like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us from those who in the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. And then he references most excellent Theophilus. Okay? He actually references this guy named Theophilus in Acts as well. So that's who he's writing this to. And so it brings up a lot of questions like, why did he even write this? Why was it written? One theory, and it's just, it's just simply a theory, but I want to throw that out there because it kind of resonated with me. Luke being a doctor, Theophilus, we know that Theophilus was a high Roman official. Okay, that, thus the, where it says the most excellent, that is a term that they used when they're addressing high Roman officials. Theophilus may well have been an attorney. We know that he was a believer. He may well have been an attorney who was there to defend Paul. And one of the theories goes that Luke actually wrote this in chronological order, carefully interviewing witnesses to write this down to be introduced as evidence in Paul's trial. Okay, now that's one theory, but I've researched it, and it kind of holds water with me. Either way, it was very, very detailed. He promised that he did it in order, and one thing that we do know is he got it. He got all of his facts by interviewing witnesses. So he didn't just hear stories from people. He actually went, and he did his research, and he looked at the places and interviewed the things. So some of the people he interviewed were Christians, some were Jews, and some were Gentiles, non-believers from all over the place. So he really compiled his sources to come up with this gospel. He was actually, so we know that he was a friend of Paul's, but he actually traveled uh, with Mark. So Paul and Mark and Luke actually did a lot of ministry together, traveling around together. Now Mark, follow me here, Mark and Matthew were really close friends. So the fact that he was traveling around with Mark and Paul probably means he probably at least met Matthew at some point. Scripture doesn't say they traveled together, but he probably at least met him, meaning that the Gospels of Matthew and Mark were already in existence. He would have known about them, and here he is talking to these writers of these Gospels. And with all this information, he says, okay, I've heard from these guys. These guys are eyewitnesses. I'm going to put all this in order. Because you know those first Gospels aren't necessarily in chronological order, and it can throw us off when we read it sometimes, right? Well, Luke promises us uh, that he writes in chronological order just as you would if you're trying to present testimony, right? So that's kind of where he was. He wanted to accurately portray the life of Jesus and as close as possible to the factual order of things that they happen. So anyway, that's, that's why. Now, here's another quick thing that I want to talk about is a lot of people talk about the differences in the last words, okay? The last words, according to um, Matthew and Mark, they talk about Jesus crying out, okay, are this, and maybe you've heard this before. According to Matthew and Mark, both, different, different verses, obviously, Jesus cries out and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And yet in Luke, based on eyewitness testimony, Luke says his final words were, into your hands I commit my spirit. So where, where is, there, is there a contradiction there? If you read the scriptures carefully, it actually talks about, in the first two, his first cry, which is, why have you forsaken me? And then it mentions a second cry. But in that second cry, in the first two gospels, it doesn't say what he said, if anything. Maybe they couldn't hear or something like that. But going back and interviewing eyewitnesses, this is what Luke documented. Now, my, my theory okay, is this. If you're talking to eyewitnesses, so he may have talked to Mary Magdalene. He may have talked to Jesus' mother, uh, other people that were around. If you heard your Lord and Savior say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That would be a terrible thing to hear in your heart. That would be a, a dark terrible thing to hear at that moment. You're watching him in this moment of anguish, and he says that. But then, later, you see the resurrected Lord, and you hear that he was seen by many, and he, and he triumphed over the grave, and he came to life again. So what you would do is you would focus on the last thing that he uttered, not the most impactful thing, which was, God, why have you forsaken me? But the very last thing, which may have been quiet and under his breath, but it was loud enough for somebody at the foot of the cross to hear, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it's not a contradiction. It's an emphasis on the timing and the place of when it was written. So that's where we are. Um, let's go to the next verse, Luke 23, 44. If we could throw that up there. Luke 23, 44. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So again, by the Jewish record of timekeeping, it was between noon and three. This is the time frame that we're talking about, between noon and three. Some of the Pharisees had previously, when they were kind of taunting Jesus, they said, hey, give us a sign. Give us a sign from heaven that you are who you say you are. Because they were actually taunting him and saying, hey, our, our wizards and our witches can do these things. Magicians they can do some of these miracles that you're talking about. So if you are really the son of God, why don't you show us a sign from heaven, something that's undeniable and powerful. So they're taunting him with this. And he doesn't respond at the time. But boy, does he respond now. It shows the power of God and that the time of judgment had come. Because we go back to scripture. This is now, if you were a Jew, you would have known this. In Amos, okay, we don't read from Amos very often, but Amos was one of the minor prophets. Amos 8, 9, again, about 750 B.C. Amos says this when he's talking about the judgment of Israel. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. 750 years before this, it's prophesied that this is going to happen. And at that very moment... The light of the world is extinguished, and the sun is darkened, fulfills prophecy. If you were in that moment, can you imagine again the power of that moment? I keep telling you these stories to, to try and, and help you to grasp the gravity of the moment of what's going on. Now, if you're a Roman soldier or, or somebody else who didn't have any knowledge of this, it would have been powerful enough in the middle of the day for the sun to go dark, right? But if you were a Jew, especially a Pharisee, 
or one of the Sadducees or the high priest or any of these people, the Sanhedrin, if you were any of those people, you knew Scripture very well. And if you saw this man claiming to be the Messiah, and at that moment where he gave up his life, the sun darkened for three hours, how powerful would that be in your heart? How powerful would that be at that moment? So next scripture, Luke 23, 45. It says, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. They're talking about the, the temple, the Holy of Holies, okay, where the literal spirit of God resided. Okay? This is where they believe that, that God actually resided in the temple behind a veil, behind actually two curtains, in a place called the Holy of Holies. Now that's where God was, and Jewish tradition said that you couldn't access God. Only the high priest or, or specially chosen priest could access God. So they would go in, they would hear from the Lord, and then they would come out and tell you what the Lord said. And because the temple veil was torn, the Spirit of God no longer resided in this temple. It's an illustration that the temple is now dead. The Spirit of God no longer lives in the temple, but the Spirit of God is in us. And this is what the death of Jesus accomplished. It's interesting, in Matthew 27, it says, Scripture says that the veil was split from bottom to top. Not bottom to top, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. From top to bottom. From top to bottom. The significance of that is that only God could split it from top to bottom because it was high, high, you couldn't reach it. And so seeing that happen was a significant act that the Lord himself actually did this. So once again, God took that dark and painful moment and redeemed it. That moment when Christ died, he redeemed that by, by splitting the temple veil. And now his spirit was accessible to all of us. So next one in the last, the last passage here, Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now this is, again, Luke is the only one that actually records these words. And it's interesting because, again, if you were a Jew, these words would have made sense to you. This was a standard, those words, into your hands, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit was a very, very common prayer that devout Jews would say at bedtime. They would say that every night. As they went to bed, they would pray that prayer. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It was a prayer of trust. It was a prayer of saying there may be wolves outside, there may be warring tribes, there may be all kinds of things going on in my life, but Lord, as I lay my head down, I commit my spirit into your hands. And so this is something, again, as Jesus said this, and anybody that overheard this would have known the significance of that. It actually harkens back to Psalm 31.5. Uh, this is David actually wrote this, said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. So that's where that prayer comes from, and Jesus then echoes this. It's a common prayer. Jesus lived his life to serve God. He lived his entire life to serve God and to see his will be done. This psalm and that prayer just signifies an unfailing trust in the goodness of God in the face of everything that's going on up until that last moment and that last breath. Jesus had unfailing faith and confidence that God was good 
And no matter what was going on in his life in that moment, he could confidently commend his spirit into the hands of God, knowing that God's will is being done, knowing that he had fulfilled everything that was being asked of him at the time. The other synoptics, uh, when it says, my God, why God, have you forsaken me? It's actually in Psalm 22 where that comes from. But again, God took a cry of doubt. Because I'm not saying he didn't say that. He did say that. But later on, he commended his spirit. He took a moment of doubt and a moment of pain, and he redeemed it. He redeemed it into faith and trust in a life served according to its purpose. So, the worship team can go ahead and come on up as I conclude this. I want to ask, um, could you confidently say that? Right now, where you are, could you confidently lay your head down on your pillow tonight and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? Now, it's not saying we're hoping for death. It's saying that, Lord, whatever happens... I confidently commit my spirit to you. Whatever happens, good or bad, I have faith that you're a good father. Could you say that? Interesting thing, if you're a believer in Christ, you've already said that. If you're a believer in Christ and you have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then you have already said, Father, I commend my spirit into you. But then why do we still doubt? We still doubt because we have an enemy. We still doubt because we have an enemy that wants to tell us that we can't trust in God, that we have to reserve a little for, we can trust, but not all the way. We have to hold a little bit back for ourselves because nobody's going to take care of us like we are going to take care of us, right? Nobody else has our best interest at, at heart. That's what we're constantly led to believe. And so sometimes we take that to heart and we think, Lord, I trust you, but do we trust you entirely? In that moment of death and agony and that choice, whether you're going to say, I'm going to fight and struggle and do what I can to fight against this, or Lord, I'm going to commend my spirit into your hands with confidence and with faith. See, it's the devil that wants you to doubt. Your salvation in Jesus, if you call upon the name of the Lord and say that he is your Lord and Savior, your salvation is secure. No one can snatch that away. But we can have doubts. We can have doubts that will cause our earthly calling to be stolen. Your salvation is secure. You're going to end up in heaven. But what about your calling on earth? What about that thing that God has made you to do and has called you to this body to be a part of? The devil can steal that away in a minute because all that takes is a lie believed. A lie believed that if you step into this thing, you don't know what you're doing. It could kill you. Or do you step into it confidently saying, I'm stepping into this because I know this is what God has called me to do. And he is a good father. And even unto death, he will redeem everything for my good.
So before we go into communion, I want to give that opportunity. I had mentioned about testimony. Is there anybody that has something on their heart that they want to share, a time when they had doubt in the Lord to help them overcome that doubt? Throw up your hand if anybody's got anything. Back here. So about six years ago, I lost my job and uh, thought I was going to retire with that job. Didn't know what was uh, what was in the plans for me. And uh, God took care of us the whole way through the time I was, you know, I left that job and because of Craig. I went to work the next day for Craig at a severe pay cut, but he still helped get us through. But I didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, it got me my job at iHeart. And it's been like the best job ever. And that was God orchestrating that whole thing. I'd have been stuck with my prior job forever because I just wasn't moving and God had to move me out of there. Yeah. But uh, we prayed about it the whole time and I, I never really doubted that God was going to take care of us and he did, big time. Amen. So. That's awesome. Thank you. Anyone else? Right here. Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Um, I was just going to share briefly the opportunity I had to go to Papua New Guinea in January with my husband and my son and the Lord told me to go and I was like okay because <laughs> um, it's across the world and it's 100% different than here you're eating off the fire and uh, sleeping on the ground and no electricity and uh, it was really powerful because he gave me a vision of just running and jumping off a cliff and I was like, and that's really how it felt. And I was literally trembling. And Pastor Gabe and um, Pastor Bob and some others prayed over me before I went. Because last time I was there, um, I experienced some really intense spiritual warfare. And um, it was a really powerful experience. And God really worked. Um, and so just being able to completely surrender, like, you know, not thinking of it logically or this is an astronomical amount of money, God, like just doing what he said and being obedient and trusting that he will carry it. And I didn't have all the details. Um, he just said, spend time with me and show up. And so it was just really powerful to just completely surrender. And then he orchestrated all the little pieces, like where we got food and transportation. Like I didn't have any of that figured out. So praise God. That's what faith is sometimes, is not knowing the answer to the word, to the question how, but saying yes anyway. Ava? Um, I'm Ava, and so um, a while ago, one of my friends from school invited me to go to a youth retreat, and um, I was expecting to be moved by God. I was expecting to go there to get closer to God, but um, I just felt like he didn't show up. And so I went home mad at God and I was praying to him and I was like, why didn't you show up? I went there to get closer to you and you didn't even come. And I was just so mad. And so like I've prayed like so many times that he would just give me a miracle because I didn't know how much longer I could hold on to my faith, like how much longer I could believe. And so um, I closed my eyes and right away I saw me standing in a dark place and I saw Jesus behind me and he had his hands open and I could see the holes in his hands and he was just calling me to come, but I couldn't see him. And so I finally turned around and I ran to him and we just hugged like forever. And so, 
And then, so I open my eyes again, and I, like, after you see something like that, you want to have more of that moment. And so I close my eyes again, hoping something else would happen. And so um, I close my eyes again, and something did. And, like, it was like I had a lizard's eyes, and I could, like, see through my eyelids. It was really weird. And then, um, so I just looked over, and I could see him sitting next to me. And he was as real as you and me. Like, I could touch him. And he was wearing this white robe, and it was just so white. And even though he had this glorious robe on, his sandals were just dirty and rusty. And it's like he was walking with me the whole time. Like, he never left my side. And um, so then we just hugged again for a long time. And I opened my eyes, and he told me to share it with everybody. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. else we have time for one more if anybody else hi my name is Brian um, it's a bit of a long story I'm gonna try to make it as short as I can uh, for me learning to trust in God is something that's actually taken about eight years um, to a lifetime you could almost say uh, when I was 20 years old, I was deployed to Afghanistan to a pretty, pretty nasty part of it. And when I got there, uh, there was one particular uh, experience that I had where God literally spoke to me uh, in the middle of the battle. And uh, the thing that he told me went completely against all of our procedures, things that we were supposed to do given the circumstances. And I ignored all of that. And I listened to this this voice that I thought at the time was just a thought in my head and I was tired and weary and it turned out it was the Holy Spirit really talking to me and uh, through listening to this uh, specific instructions that I was given even though I was I was actually lost on a battlefield um, you know Marines in my unit were being shot out in the field and uh, I ended up living there was a bomb that was buried in the dirt in front of me that I had no idea was even there and had I not listened to this voice I actually would have crawled right over this thing and I would have been killed and I wouldn't be here right now and from that experience uh, I went through some serious stuff after that uh, you know you hear about veterans <clears throat> you know having like PTSD depression I went through all of that uh, I put my hope in Jesus even though at the time I couldn't see my deliverance I, I didn't believe that I had to you know, deliverance or salvation at the time, but I held on to the hope of Jesus and just the belief that he had a better future in store for me. And it was through that hope alone that I was able to, to get throughout all of that stuff. And uh, over the course of that time, like I don't have anxiety anymore. You know, I can stand up and talk in front of all of you without freaking out and wanting to go hide somewhere. <laughs> uh, and you know, from that, I think the Lord started sharing with me, you know, how to trust in him because at the time I didn't. Even years and years after that experience, even though I knew it was God when it happened, I still didn't trust in him. Uh, so it took many years of me, you know, having to realize, okay, God, how do I trust in you? How do I trust in you? I've seen you do incredible things in my life. I've seen you literally save me from something that I, you know, should have been killed in, and you still saved me. 
And ultimately, uh, this past year, actually in the past few months, I felt like the Lord even still is revealing things to me that from that experience that even if we're not actively seeking him out or chasing him, he's still chasing after us because of his love for us. And that's cemented in the act of what Christ did for us. Everything that Pastor Bob has been talking about today, that was cemented thousands of years ago for each and every single one of you and for each and every single human being that walks the earth. The only way that we get access to that is if it's shared with us and we you know, accept it and believe it and receive it, right? Uh, and that's why Christ wants us to go and share that with as many others as possible. And I, I think it's through the process of us starting to seek him out that's when we start building that trust in him. It has to be a very intentional action. We have to be very intentional in our minds and in our hearts and what our, our direction and focus is and learning to trust in him. So for me, it's not something that happened overnight. It's taken many, many years for me to get to a place of realizing that that trust in him is that the things that we experience in this life are temporary. They're all going to pass away, but we have a future and eternity that we get to spend with the Lord. So the very hardships that we uh, you know, face here, those are things that just last for a little while. But what we have with Jesus, with God, it's gonna last for an eternity in the next life. Amen, amen. So Brian's gonna be our guest preacher next week. That's a good word. As all of you, that's a good word. And it all comes back to being able to trust in the Lord. And just like Brian said, which is exactly accurate, we can know these things in our head. We can know that we can trust in the Lord. We can know that he's good. But when it hits the fan and it's the time, okay, the rubber meets the road, whatever metaphor you want to use, when it's that time, do we feel it in our heart? Because it's only if you feel it in your heart that you're going to be able to act on it and see the blessing for what it is. So our deliverance ministry, our, our sozo deliverance ministry, that's exactly what it is. It's helping you to see those things that God has already been orchestrating in your life and see them for what they are past the lies of the enemy. Because the enemy lies and he lies loud and he's got plenty of help. But the Lord's still small voice is something that we have to hear over and over again. And sometimes it takes somebody praying with you or agreeing with you to help you get past that point. And so if you're here in this place right now, we're gonna go to communion in just a moment. Number one, if you have not accepted Jesus into your heart, he is relentless and he is here for you now and he wants your heart. He wants your heart and he wants all of you and he wants you to know how much he loves you and that he gave his life, he went through all these things we've been talking about for you. Not some hypothetical person that you'll never meet for you. And he offers that to you. And all he wants is for you just to accept his gift. And so if that's you and you would like, if you would like to confess that and have somebody pray with you, we have a prayer team in the back who would love to do that. I'll be here after service. I would love to pray with you. Maybe you just need somebody to help you identify the lies that the enemy is speaking to you. And again, our prayer team is a perfect place for that. Because the enemy lies all the time. But God is good all the time. Amen? So as we go into communion, let's do this. As Jesus said, the commandment, 
to do this in remembrance of him. Let's celebrate him and his goodness and through what he has done, our access to the Father's heart. So we've got juice at the crosses. You can serve yourself and then Gabe and I will be up front. We've got wine and bread here. We would love to serve you. But let's do this. Let's do this in remembrance of him and just full of thanksgiving in our hearts for all that he has done for us. Amen.
bless you as you go. We're going to just continue to worship. If you're still praying, feel free to hang out and connect with one another. Let's bless one another as fellow children of God. And we'll see you again soon. Bless you.